0: Hey, good morning church. Welcome to uh, worship at Shades. Uh, We want to welcome those who are here uh, in our worship center. And also we'd like to give a word of welcome to those that are online. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, being a part of our service. Uh, We're coming to the conclusion of a series on the book of Job. And if you've got your Bible or something on that, if you would turn to Job chapter 42, and this is the last chapter in the book of Job chapter 42. Um, We've titled t- today Epilogue. Epilogue. Always love the epilogue. Uh, you know, the epilogue is something that comes along at the, at the end of, uh, of some literary work. You've covered all the chapters and you get to the end, and it's usually used at the end to bring some kind of closure to the work. Sometimes in the epilogue, it will give you update on the characters. Uh, it may summarize some lessons that need to be learned. And it just kind of ties a bow around everything. And you see this in books. You also see it in movies and TV shows. And probably when I thought about epilogue, the first thing I thought about was Star Trek. I mean, Star Trek. Every Star Trek ended with uh, Captain Kirk saying what? Captain's log. Stardate 9529.1, the crew of the Starship Enterprise, and then on and on and on, okay? And what he does is in Captain's Log Update, he kind of gives you a summary as to what they learned in their latest adventure, and even sometimes kind of put a little carrot out there to say, this is where we're going next. It's that epilogue ties a bow around everything. Well, in the book of Job, we think about that, uh, last week in chapter 42, Job had been going through the whole book wanting God to finally speak to him. I'm ready for you to talk to me. I've I've got a complaint for you. And then God spoke to him in this whirlwind. And when God spoke to him in the whirlwind, after he finished talking, (laughs) Job was like, woe is me. Uh, He said, man, I've heard you, but now I have seen you. And he gave himself fully submitted to the sovereignty of God. And he came to a point of repentance of some of his own prideful questioning of God's justice. And, uh, and once he got through this repentance and this revelation, uh, he understood that what God does, God does it for his glory and it will be right. Right. And so he's come to this point. Well, after he's gotten to this point of this expansion and deepening of his knowledge of God, what happens next? Because when we left that verse 6 of chapter 42, he's still sitting on the ash heap. His body is still covered with sores and boils. He is still suffering through the incredible loss financially and also of family. And so what happens? Well, What happens is in the epilogue, and that is chapter 42. So follow with me, and I will start reading in the seventh verse, and we'll go all the way through uh, to verse 17. Are you ready? Here we go. He says, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, okay? That's one of the three friends that were giving him a hard time. My anger burns against you, and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bulls, uh, bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shushite, and Zophar, the Namathite, they went and they did what the Lord had told them and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Then you get to verse 10. And he says, and the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. And when he had prayed for his friends and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters, and all who had known him before ate bread with him in his house, and they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. And he had also seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter, Jemima, and the name of the second, Keziah, and the name of the third, Karen Hapuk. And in all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his son's sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. Let's close in prayer. All right. All right. What a great close to the story. Hey, he lives to be 210 years old. He was 70 when it started. He gave him another 140, gave him 210. Looks like some incredible things happened. Well, in that epilogue, in those verses, there are lessons that we can pull from that that will help us kind of summarize this book and the things I believe we can take with us. So, I'd like you to write these down. Let me tell you the very first lesson that we'll look at today, and that is, the God of the Bible is a God of justice and mercy. The God of the Bible is a God of both justice and mercy. Now, what happens is right after God has finished talking to Job, He immediately turns his attention to Eliphaz. Now, Eliphaz was the oldest of the three friends that came and tried to comfort Job, but actually they just berated him and they accused him of uh, some heinous sins and that's why they felt God was punishing him. Well, what God does is he rebukes him. He rebukes him and he rebukes his friends that they did not speak correctly of God. But there's one guy that got left out and that's Elihu. Now, Elihu was the fourth guy. He was the bystander. He was the angry young man. man, And that he's the one that that, uh, spent a number of chapters talking. And most commentators believe that the reason God did not go after him is that he had a lot of truth. There was a lot of good things that he said. Now, he needed to get some perspective adjusted, and he really needed to bring his pride down. He needed to notch that down a bunch, okay? But besides those things, felt that he had enough truth in him that God didn't deal with him. But what God does deal is with these three friends. And look what he says in verse seven. He says, my anger burns against you and your friends. So the Lord's words against these three friends, he says, my anger burns against you. Now this doesn't mean that God's got some temper tantrum. It doesn't mean he's got some hissy fit to where he's all upset saying, my anger's burning against you. No, you need to understand that uh, this is something that's been building. God has been there and has heard every harsh word that these three men have said. And he has just been standing back, taking all of this in, waiting for the right moment to be able to tell them, I'm really angry as to what you're doing. And why is he angry? This is what he says. You have not spoken of me what is right. You have not spoken of me what is right. In fact, you have just flat out told lies about who I am and about my character. They presented God in an inaccurate, unfair, inappropriate manner. And in an effort to uphold God's justice, they totally ignored his mercy. Because they told Job, hey, you know why you're in this situation? It's because you sinned some heinous sin. And because you sinned this terrible sin, God is pouring all this punishment on you. And if you'll just ask for forgiveness of that sin, then everything will be right. Because in their mind, anytime you suffer, the reason is because you sinned. And what they have done is just gone all the justice and they completely left out the mercy of God. Not only did they leave out the mercy of God and they left out the sovereignty of God, they even left out mercy towards Job. Just the way they handled all of that. And so they had, they said wrong things in a wrong way with a wrong attitude. And from God's standpoint, that's just wrong. (laughs) And uh, he said, I gotta do something about it. Well, now, I don't know about you, but if I was one of those three friends and in this whirlwind and God is speaking through it and he says, Danny, my anger is burning against you because of what you said about me. I'd be a tad nervous. I don't know about you, but I'm thinking, I'm getting ready, the hammer's getting ready to fall right here. And this God of justice that they were talking about shows the side of mercy because he's going to say, so that I don't have to put my wrath and punishment on you, I'm gonna give you an opportunity. An opportunity for forgiveness. And so verse eight, he gives them some instructions. He says, I want you to gather seven bulls and seven rams. and You gather, them because during those days that when someone sinned, you would kill an animal and the shedding of that blood would cover sin. And so he says, do the sacrifice, get them over here. Seven bulls, seven rams, put them together. And it's interesting because he says, I want you to do that and I want you to bring and go to Job. Go to Job. And I want you to make this sacrificial offering to me and have Job pray for you. And the reason I want Job to pray for you is because he has my heart. I trust his heart. And so you have Job pray to me and ask me, God, to forgive you and to withhold my punishment. Burn offerings. Company with prayer equals divine favor. Okay, Job, God's servant. And and in those verses, four times he calls him my servant. I love that. He says, Job, my servant. Job, my servant. Job, my servant. He's my servant. And he said, I want him to pray for you. He says, I will accept his prayer on your behalf. And so what is happening is the one who was offended, Job, is now praying for those that were the offenders. And so verse nine, it says, the three men did what the Lord had told them. They did everything they were supposed to and now they're waiting. And they're waiting for Job to pray. It's just an incredible scene. You've got these three men who not too long ago were piling on Job, telling him how bad he was and how wrong he was and that God was punishing him. And now the scene has so shifted to where these three men are in danger experiencing the wrath of God, and they are counting on this man, Job, to pray and be a mediator to God for them. That's pretty good. And the way it happened at the end of verse nine, it says, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Job, servant of God, being a mediator between God and these three offenders and their atoning sacrifices. God. Job prayed for him, God answered, he withheld his wrath and he withheld his punishment. The God of the Old Testament is a God both of justice and of mercy. But now look at point number two and that is this. God's justice and mercy are revealed at the cross. Don't miss this. God's justice and mercy are revealed at the cross. The book of Job is pointing beyond this mediation incident to a grander scale of mediation between God and all of mankind. That mediator is Jesus Christ who gave himself as an offering for sins and lives to make intercession for us. So even on the small scale, as Job was the mediator between these three friends and God, it points to something even larger. And that is Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary, dying for our sins and being our mediator uh, between us and God. 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to become, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Hey, follow that. That passage. Our state, God made Jesus to be sin. On one hand, you have Jesus Christ. He knew no sin, he was completely obedient to everything that God had asked him. He was perfect. And God made Christ to be sin, not to be a sinner, but sin, all of sin. And it says that God took our sin and imputed our sin, credited our sin to Jesus Christ and put all the sins of the world on him. And so when Christ was on the cross, God made Jesus to be the thing that he hated the most. And that is sin and the thing for which he has infinite wrath. And God incredited all of our sin to him. Consequently, as all sin was imputed to Jesus. All Jesus' righteousness was imputed to us and was credited to our account. And so God imputes our credits, all of Christ's payments, all of his obedience to us. And because of the cross, God's justice was satisfied. And God now looks at us those who've accepted Christ as Savior as if we were His own Son, and He sees the righteousness of Jesus in us. This is called the Great Exchange. This is the Great Exchange. We exchanged all of our sins and gave them to Jesus. Jesus took His righteousness and gave it to us. That is the Great Exchange. Jesus. Became the thing that God hates the most in that sin. And we become the thing that God loves the most and that is righteousness. That is the great exchange and it's what happens through the cross. It is the way that justice is mercifully satisfied for us. God's justice against sin once and for all was satisfied in the death of Jesus Christ. And as a result, God's mercy is released in the forgiveness of those who trust in Jesus. It's the justice and the mercy. Now, does a story end there? No, because you see, when they took Jesus' body down from the dead and they put it into the grave, three days later, God raised him from the dead. And when he raised him from the dead, he vindicated him. And, uh, and he says, hey, we've conquered sin and you've conquered death. And then he took Jesus and Jesus ascended to heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father and one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord because of what he did. God's justice And God's mercy, it's right there at the cross. And just as you can wrap your head around one man Job praying for these three friends to God and say, Lord, don't put your wrath on them. You can imagine on a bigger scale, Jesus Christ interceding for every one of us. And he's looking to the Father and he says, I'm praying to the father for Danny Wood. He says, he sinned, he's messed up. He makes mistakes. And he says, I'm asking you to forgive him because I have paid the penalty for his sin. And so Lord, whenever you see Danny, don't see Danny, the sinner, see Danny through the righteousness of Christ because of what I have done. Jesus has done on the cross. And so as we look at this in the book of Job, it points us there, but then look at the third, third line. The third uh, lesson is this. Restoration follows repentance and forgiveness. Restoration follows repentance and forgiveness. Now think what's going on. Job is praying. These guys are down here. And so while Job is praying, asking for God to forgive these guys of their sin, Their sins are being forgiven, guilt is being removed, and these three men are being restored in their relationship with God. Restoration follows repentance, they're repenting. I put my sacrifice here, oh Lord, forgive us. Man, we were crazy, we were dumb, don't know what we were doing, we did the wrong thing. Please forgive us, and Job is praying that prayer to God. Restoration follows repentance. But another restoration is taking place. The only way that Job could pray to God that God would forgive their sins against him is that Job would have to forgive them for their sins against him. Does that make sense? He can't sit there and pray and say, oh God, forgive them for what they've done, but hold malice in his heart towards them. He can't do that. So he has to come to that point to where he says, you know what, I forgive you. I forgive you. And when he gets to that point, there is another restoration and reconciliation that's taking place, and that is a reconciliation and a restoration between friends. And these three friends are coming back into that right relationship with Job. During this prayer, harsh feelings are being forgotten, grudges are being erased, and not only are these three friends getting right with God, but they're getting reconciled with Job restoration follows repentance. But listen, God has another restoration in mind for Job. In verse 10, it says he restored to Job double his possessions. Whoa, doubled his possessions. If you go to chapter one, you see what possessions you had. Then go to chapter 42, you'll see he doubled them. And so he started out and he said he had 7,000. He had 7,000 7, sheep, now he's got 14,000. He had 3,000 camels, now he's got 6,000 camels. Uh, he had 500 oxen, now he's got 1,000 oxen. He had 500 uh, female donkeys, now he's got 1,000 female donkeys. He had one wife and now he's got one wife. Okay, so that stayed the same. We kept the wife, kept the same wife. So he got the same wife, but he had 10 children that were lost in a tragic accident. And what did God do? He gave him 10 more children. He had seven sons, three daughters. Guess what? He gave him seven sons, three daughters. But yet this time when he talked about the daughters, he said they were the most beautiful in all the land. So they got a look upgrade. So uh, And then not only that, but they got their rights expanded because he said he included her in the will. He put them in the inheritance. I don't know about the other three if they were in there or not, but these three are in there. And so, wow, everything gets improved over here. And that God restored all of this. Now listen, I don't think Job ever thought that his situation would improve while he was living on earth. When you read his comments, it's not like he says, I can't wait to when this gets all through and I get all my business back on, on the ground again and have more children. When you read Job, it is more like he felt like his vindication, his restoration would come after death, and that there's things that God would do in the next life, after death. And so um, God said, I'll tell you what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna award you right now while you're here on planet Earth and make that award." But there's something else I think we need to see. The point is restoration follows repentance and forgiveness. You know, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job after he prayed for his friends and forgave them interesting the order God did not speak in the when, and Job said man I messed up I'm so sorry uh I submit to your sovereignty and then God said hey I'm gonna restore everything for you and then come back and say hey now I need you to uh, forgive your friends nope first thing he did was he dealt with his heart and he dealt with him forgiving these friends and he said I need you to help me pray for these friends in order for you to do that, you gotta get your heart right in order to, do, uh, to, to be the one that would pray. So after he prayed for his friends and he forgave them himself, then it is the restoration began to take place. Now there's some of you today that you may be going through some really difficult times. And the reason you are is because somebody has wronged you and they have done something that has hurt you and they're just flat out wrong. And, uh, and yet for some reason, God is delaying giving you justice. It might very well be that your willingness to forgive and move on is all that is necessary to prompt the Lord to let his justice roll down. You see, restoration follows both repentance of things you have done wrong and forgiveness that you have granted to those who have wronged you, all right? Number four is this, God will bring justice either sooner, later, or eternity. (laughs) God will bring justice either sooner or later or in eternity. Hebrews chapter six, verse 10 says this, for God is not unjust, So, as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Look at the first part of that verse. God is not unjust as to overlook your work. Listen, there are some of you that are watching now, some of you that are listening to this right now, that you have been terribly abused. You have been victims of the worst kind of mistreatment. You have been taken advantage of by someone you trusted. You've been abandoned by your mate. Maybe you have been treated unfairly. Maybe somebody has ripped you off, and it has just never been made right. I just want to remind you of of at least two truths. I want to remind you of this truth, and that is God does not forget God does not forget, and the second truth is that God does not adjust his plan on our timetable. He does not adjust his plan to our timetable. It's almost as if God has an accounts settlement desk, but it doesn't operate between nine and five, and he doesn't handle our case when we like it to be handled. Job, after going through all his suffering, and has waited all this time to be vindicated, and then out of the whirlwind, when he least expected it, God speaks to Eliphaz and he says, hey, you guys were wrong. You guys were wrong. And there is some repentance and some forgiveness that needs to go in over here. We need to understand that God hears everything. Now, he didn't say anything at the time, but he heard it all. He is not unjust to forget one idle word. And I can assure you that he will not overlook one wrong act that's been committed against you. He has a perfect plan, and his plan is unfolding. And when his timetable says now, justice will roll down, and his account settlement desk will take swift action. We are not promised freedom from suffering in this world, nor are we made privy to all of God's secrets, but we are promised grace, And God is faithful, and he will bring justice to pass. If not now, later. And if not later, in eternity. God will make it right. And he has to do this because it's a part of his character. He has an habitual truthfulness about him. But for all of us right here and now, there is grace, and there can be hope, okay? Number five is this. God uses suffering to produce endurance and character. God uses suffering to produce endurance and character. When Job was going through uh, all of his, his, his complaining and questioning, he made a statement in Job 23 verse 10, says this, but he knows the way that I take, and when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Whoa. In the middle of all that he's going through. This is incredible. He's saying, you know, even in the midst of suffering, even in these times of questioning, he believes he will come out a better man. I will come out as gold. When God is finished dealing with him, there will be God-like blessings that will emerge following this affliction. You see, the Lord knows what you are walking through and it is not without purpose. And this is affirmed in the New Testament book of James and James chapter five, verse 11, when he talks about Job. Look what he says. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Look at that. He just kind of summarizes the book of Job. The steadfastness of Job and how God God has a purpose, God has compassion, and God is merciful. The steadfastness of Job. That word steadfast, it's a Greek word that means capacity to stand under a load. And it means that that when you go through this suffering, it builds this capacity, the capacity to stay under a heavier and heavier load and it means you keep on, even when the pressure tempts you to give up. It's that quality of standing your ground, of holding out, of enduring these times of trouble. And he says, even as Job did that, so also we need to be doing that. Because whenever suffering comes, it leads to endurance. Romans chapter five, verses three through four says this. But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Suffering produces endurance. And when I get the endurance, it produces my character, and then that character produces hope. Oswald Chambers made this statement. He says, to choose suffering makes no sense at all, but to choose God's will in the midst of suffering makes all the sense in the world. To choose God's will in the midst of suffering makes all the sense in the world. Suffering will come. So we want to choose God's will, and we want to see that it builds endurance and character. There is there's no better way to produce endurance and character than through suffering, but it's not the most fun way, okay? Okay? We would all love to take like a three hour class and say, this is good. I've got endurance and character. Hey, God just doesn't work it that way. <laughs> he, he's, gonna, he, he's gonna teach you these things and the only way he's gonna teach me and teach you is when we go through these times of suffering, okay? Last point's this. A vertical perspective will keep us from horizontal panic. A vertical perspective will keep us from a horizontal panic. Uh, kudos to Chuck Swindoll. I love this statement. A vertical perspective will keep us from horizontal panic. What is a vertical perspective? A vertical perspective is this is that God's people do suffer. God's people do suffer. It's a reality. All right? Number two is God is in total control. My vertical perspective is to know that God's people do suffer. However, God is in total control. It is his sovereignty. and there is a mystery of God that we cannot figure out. We understand those things. His ways are higher than our ways, things we don't understand. However, He is in total control. And last is this, and that is God gives us faith to hold on to in our uncertainties. God gives us faith to hold on to Him in our uncertainties. That's your vertical perspective. Suffering comes. When suffering comes into your life, the first thing you need to realize is God's people do suffer, okay? I understand that. And then the other thing you need to realize, but you know, God's totally in control of this. God has got this. His sovereignty, there is a purpose in this. And number three is, God has given me faith. Faith to be able to hold on to him even in the midst of this uncertainty. You see, it's suffering, suffering, It's sovereignty and it's faith. And may we take those truths and be able to use those, hold on to those to help us as we journey through this life and go through difficult times, okay? Let me ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes for just a moment. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the things that you teach us here in this book of Job and Lord, I, I pray for each person here who is walking through some difficult days. And, um, and it's not by accident that, that we are studying this book at this particular time for those particular people. And so my prayer, Lord, is that the truths of your word would resonate deeply within their hearts and that, um, and that they would be comforted by this and that they would look to you with different eyes. And that they would trust you as they walk through these hard times. I want to specifically pray, Father, for people who there may be grudges that are being held. There's just a a bitterness of of unforgiveness that is in their hearts. And to know that you are so ready to restore and, and to replenish. But yet, there's a bottleneck of unforgiveness. And I pray that you'd use this message today to help them to realize that they need to take that step. Even as you have forgiven them through Christ dying on the cross of their sins, our sins, they also are to forgive others. And Lord, for those that are walking through really difficult times, may you be their strength. May they see the sovereignty of God and may you give them the faith to wrap their arms around you during those times of uncertainty. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.